I'm Dan Hartnett, and I'm a professor at Kenyon College. Whenever I'm socializing with my colleagues, I inevitably end up asking them questions about the fascinating research they do. I thought other people might be interested in our conversations, too. So I decided to start a podcast to ask Kenyan faculty about their research, their fields, and how they get students involved. This is the Kenyan College Profcast. Joining me today is Dr. Yvonne Garcia. Yvonne is a literature professor who works on a host of different topics, from 19th century Gothic literature to post-colonial theory. Her scholarship combines these in new and different ways to gain a new perspective on well-known and long-studied literature. She has won every teaching award <laughs> Kenyon offers, and she is currently the William P. Rice Associate Professor of English and Literature. I sat down with Yvonne in February of 2019. Yvonne, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. What a pleasure. I love talking to you in any context, so doing this is even more fun. Let's dig right in. What is Gothic literature? So Gothic literature depends on the context in which you are going to define it, right? So we inherit the Gothic from Britain, the U.S. Gothic, which is my area of expertise. But there is conversation about how the Spanish Gothic or even the Latin American Gothic is very different from the British Gothic and from the U.S. Gothic. I'm particularly interested, as I said, in the U.S. Gothic and in the ways that it represents difference. I would say that my favorite definition of the U.S. Gothic is based on Toni Morrison's notion of an Africanist presence, which means the way that African-Americans in uh, U.S. literature are both an absence and a presence, where darkness becomes symbolically important or weighted because it represents the connection to race and to slavery. And Teresa Godou is another scholar who says literally that the U.S. Gothic is haunted by slavery. So we are considering, again, the representation of blackness or darkness not as just a trope that is vacated of meaning, but that in the United States has specific meaning because of slavery and because of race. How widespread worldwide is Gothic literature in time, place, language? You just mentioned Spanish mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Latin American Gothic. Can you talk a little bit about that? I would say that Gothic is a worldwide phenomenon. And what is interesting is that Gothic studies at this point is moving towards a more global understanding of the Gothic. In the beginning, in the United States, Gothic studies, again, were very Anglophone and based, again, on Britain and the United States, where now we're really looking more transnationally, more globally, as I said, to what other parts of the world have had Gothic literature that wouldn't fit the sort of British mold or wouldn't break with the British mold, which is what the U.S. Gothic does in many ways. So what are some features of a text that if I'm reading it, I know this is a Gothic text or I might suspect it? So if you look at the British tradition, there was always some kind of castle with like, you know, difficult passages or dark passages. You always had the heroine whose sexual status was going to be endangered or imperiled and who was going to be fainting a lot every time she felt she was in danger. And there was always like a villain who usually was from some other European country who was, you know, assailing her. And that was very usual of what 
has come to be known as the British Gothic. In the United States, you have then the frontier becomes a setting for a lot of U.S. Gothic. The clash between Native Americans, the presence, this Africanist presence that Morrison gives us language to talk about becomes an element. The haunted palace or castle gets transformed into the, the sort of isolated house um, in, 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 a, in a lonely place that maybe is assailed by the spirits of Native Americans who are buried under the house, right? And we can think of poltergeists, we can think yeah. of so many. Uh, so really interesting ways in which the British Gothic gets sort of transformed when it hits the Americas. Uh, and that's only to talk about the U.S. Gothic, right? I'm not an expert yet on how Latin American Gothic changes the Spanish Gothic, but that's some that's an area that is already very ebullient in 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 interest in this field. You use the term hemispheric mm-hmm. Gothic in your work. Mm-hmm. That is is that what you're talking about? The sort right. of North American and Spanish American, Latin American Gothic uh, understood as one piece. Exactly. Yes, because. What is interesting about um, U.S. Um, literature studies or what we used to call American studies in, in maybe not in the most accurate way, right? Because to think of American studies as United States is to sort of reassert a, a sort of colonialist position on the idea that America is the United States when America is a whole, a whole hemisphere, right? So if we think of the Gothic as participating of a movement, that is hemispheric, one that comes from North America, which includes, of course, Mexico, includes Canada, and goes through Central and South America, then that movement is the one I'm really interested in, right? Especially in in the experience of Latinx peoples and African-descended peoples, where those movements really have painted their experience and how they understand horror and how they understand uh, terror, right? And terror being the more psychological part of fear and horror having been identified as the more physical part of fear. Can you situate Gothic literature in time for us? Is there a particular mm-hmm. time Absolutely. frame that you mm-hmm. specifically talk about? As a, a scholar in colonialism and coloniality, in sort of like the late 19th century, I'm interested in how those discourses serve the purposes of U.S. imperialism. And so the uh, latter part of the 19th century is obviously when the United States is going to wage war against the indigenous peoples of the United States. In the 17th century, the wars begin, and they go on until the end of the 19th century. Hmm. So the United States government, in one way or another, is going to be at war with indigenous peoples in this land more than 200 years, right? 300 years. And one of the things that I'm interested in is how do we understand that as a imperialist process? And then in 1898, you have the United States going out of the landlocked area of the United States to the Philippines, to Spain, to Cuba, to Puerto Rico, and then acquiring Hawaii as a territory in 1898. And so to me, that end of the 19th century is so rife with what makes the U.S. Gothic and the Hemispheric Gothic interesting because the contact zones there are so powerfully ignited at that time. If I wanted to read some U.S. Gothic literature from the 19th century, where would I start? I mean, are there 
a couple canonical texts oh, you might, absolutely. That, that people might be familiar with? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I start my class with my favorite Gothic U.S. author, Edgar Allan Poe. And we look at the raven, and we look at the black cat, we look at Lygia, and we look at the fall of the House of Usher. And if it were up to me, we would do Poe for a whole semester. <laughs> and I actually thought of like suggesting and proposing a Poe and another author senior seminar, but I just never got around to it. Why? Because, right, you've got the raven and the black cat, Poe articulating a way in which that blackness, that darkness that Africanist presence that Morrison gives us language to talk about very clearly in these figures, right? These, these symbols, the black cat, basically the narrator is fooled into knocking on the wall where he has interred his wife. And when he knocks on the wall to tell the police, look at these walls, the cat screams and the cat is inside the wall on top of the head of the wife. And when they open the wall, the cat has made him confess, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least show them his crime. And then in The Raven, this bird of evil is the way the narrator is going to describe the bird, comes in from a storm into the room of a scholar who has lost his long lost Lenore and is hoping that she's going to come back from the dead to talk to him. And The Raven is going to repeat nevermore. And then so you want to tease that out. And then finally, in the fall of the House of Usher and in Lygia, you've got two dead women who come back from the dead in the most spectacular way that you could ever <laughs> imagine. So what's, what's not fun about teaching that, right? I want to ask you a little bit about post-colonial theory, too, because sure. I'm not sure that it's as well known outside the academy as we might think sometimes. Mm -hmm. What's your starting point for teaching students how to understand the world through post-colonial relations? So I start with uh, Mary Louise Pratt's concept of the contact zone. And Mary Louise Pratt, a uh, long, long time ago, gave us language where we understand that the contact zone is the moment where indigenous peoples meet the colonizing Europeans. And she calls that a contact zone because she wants to recognize that that clash of cultures creates what she calls asymmetries of power. I always have problems with... Uh, yeah, asymmetries of... Uh -huh. Well, you taught this in my class <laughs> yes. a number of years, ago, of years ago in a very nice way yes. uh, to my students. Yeah, but the idea of asymmetries of power, of power which yes. is something that I still use translated into yes. Spanish in my classes all the time, uh, it comes just from Pratt, which you introduced yes. me to. Yes. So those um, differences in power hierarchies and its legacies, you know, she uses the concept of the aftermath, right, of those contact zones like slavery and its aftermath today is very helpful to think about post-colonial theory, not as post-colonial as signaling an end, but post-colonial is one word where the process is ongoing, right, that we're still confronted with the wages of colonialism. And a term that I've been using more regularly now in my hemispheric literature classes, not in my Gothic classes, but I will think about this in the future, is the notion of coloniality. And coloniality, again, is a term that comes to us from the, you know, sort of social studies perspective of geoculture mm. and what is what is a geoculture what is a geoculture so a geoculture is the notion that the forces of capitalism in the world have created a cultural homogeneity mm. that is 
geographically diverse. That would be sort of my nutshell definition of what a geoculture is. So that we could say, you know, the, the difference between a U.S. person who is participating of capitalism in a particular way is not going to be very different from a person in another part of the world participating in capitalism in a similar way. That creates a kind of geoculture. I use it to, to think of geoculture as within the context of what slavery does, what slavery did to the hemisphere and how slavery marked the hemisphere, to sort of consider how the south of the United States is very similar to the Caribbean, to Brazil, so that you create a geoculture, right, where you have three differently colonized areas, but because they share a sort of engine of capitalism, slavery was an engine of capitalism, then they have a very similar southern culture. It's been mm-hmm. uh, described as a, as a sort of trans-American South. So we come back to coloniality, and coloniality is the idea that those forces are forces that are still in effect. That if you think of colonialism, you think about something that is finite. Mm-hmm. When you think about coloniality, you think about forces that are still at play regardless of a time and regardless of space. So this isn't just the past. And one thing I've noticed, and I think it might be helpful for people who aren't in the academy to at least hear discussed a little bit, is the notion that the term colonization has really broadened with time. It used to refer mostly to this historical, literal process of establishing colonies Mm -hmm. and managing, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. colonies. Mm -hmm. In the academy, though, the term colonization really has blown up Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It's much more metaphorical now Mm -hmm. often. Can you talk a little bit about how academics might use a word like colonized? You know, we think about colonized bodies, for example, which is a very metaphorical use. And people say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Talk to me about that a little bit. Absolutely. And I think it makes absolute sense. Right. And John Carlos Rowe is one of the Americanists who gave us that term. Right. So the idea of human colonies. And he used it in response to to slavery. So why is it a colony if you go there in a ship and you take it over and everybody's like, oh, that's clearly imperialism and that's clearly a colony. But if it's in your same landmass and you say, okay, well, I'm going to take all of the Cherokee who live across three states and I'm going to make them march to a land that they have no relation to, I think it was a a thousand miles away, and they're going to march, literally, take them out of their homes. In the Cherokee case, we're not talking about this this mythical idea of people in teepees. You know, the Cherokee had uh, log houses, had cabins, had implements of cooking that a European-based community would recognize as similar to to theirs. So this was literally taking them out, grabbing them out of their houses. Not that I'm saying that doing it to people in teepees is any worse, you know, or any better. I'm just saying that in, in the case of the Cherokee specifically, many people within the Cherokee nation had tried to adapt the lifestyle that would be understood by the United States as quote-unquote civilized so Mm -hmm. that they wanted to show that they had their own culture in that way and they should be left alone. And that the argument that they were somehow not at par with white Anglo-Saxons could not be used, right? And so they had their language, they had newspapers, and that wasn't enough, right? The government came, took them out, made them march, 
And why is that not colonialism, right? Why is that not imperialism? And lastly, to your point about colonized human bodies, why is it less of a colonialism or an act of coloniality, right, to use the, more, the newer terminology, to go to Africa and to take human beings from their homeland, from their culture, from their arts, from their poetry, from their language, and bring them to become an engine of richness in, in another land? How is that not to colonize a human body? You know, we can, we can play with semantics and we can say, oh, colonialism only refers to the way that white people took a ship from the Americas to Puerto Rico and colonized Puerto Rico. Or we can say, well, colonialism refers to forces that are built on the exploitation of a resource that can be human, can be, you know, geographical, can be based on resources. Sure, environmental. Yeah, environmental. And so for me, you know, to talk about colonized bodies is absolutely appropriate. And if you, if you think about the science, right, the idea that when you talk about how for African-American women, the issue with healthy birth, something that science is struggling with now to understand why it's harder for African-American women to have healthy babies, regardless of socioeconomic status. A lot of scholars are, have proposed that that is the wages of colonialism and of slavery, right? That the body, in many ways, wears those, those scars generations after. How might your perspective on the world be different from people who aren't as familiar with post-colonial ideas, do you think? Oh, totally. I mean, I would say that, you know, in, in two ways. One, I'm a colonial subject. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a woman of color. We were saying I'm a racially, completely racially mixed. I got my Ancestry.com results. We were talking about that. And so I am a colonial subject pretty much from every side that you see it, from gender, from the side of race, from the side of my national origin. I'm Puerto Rican. Puerto Rico is a colony of a territory. So, of course, my perspective is going to be different. And for some people, which is interesting, right, that disqualifies that perspective because it's too politically involved. But again, I question that, right, because how is that? perspective any less viable or important than a perspective that is a racist perspective or a misogynist perspective or a perspective that claims that being neutral is possible. I want to turn to a little bit something lighter. <laughs> yes. Um, I know you're an aficionado of horror movies yes. and horror TV programs. <laughs> How do these connect to your professional life? Oh, completely. I mean, I became an expert in the gothic because I am a horror film aficionada. I love the way you, you say that. Well, uh, come on, I'm a Spanish professor sí, speaking I to I a Puerto Rican. Yes, yes. I have to inflect the word. It would feel film. very strange not to do so. Yes, code switching. So, you know, my, my father, uh, you know, I grew up with a, a two very different parenting approaches. My mother would change the ending of fairy tales because she didn't want her children to grow up thinking that there were wolves that could eat Little Red Riding Hood, or the grandmother. So in my mother's telling of Little Red Riding Hood, everybody was friends. And then I remember kids telling me, like, you're wrong. That's not what happened. I'm like, no, you're wrong. My mom my mom told me the story. 
So there you had my mom's approach, protect them at all costs, change the story. And then my father, who the first thing, uh, when the exorcist came out in 1970s, my mom says, you're not taking her to see that film. I think I was a tween. I wasn't even a teen. And my father said, okay. And he bought the book. And he gave me the book. And he said, your mother won't let me take you to see the film. Read the book. Because she didn't say anything about you not reading the book. And so I take after my dad in that sense of like, Fear is a construct, hmm. right? I mean, fear is two things. Fear is a f- physiological weapon that we have to protect ourselves. It's the idea that if you pass a field of tall grass and the grass moves, that your brain says, is that the wind and I don't have to worry about it? Or is that a lion that's about to jump and eat me? And that you have a decision to make at that moment, right? That is not my story. That is another scholar's. I never wrote down who had that that idea. But that's the representation of sort of biological fear, right? That you have to make a decision at that moment. Is the grass shaking because of a wind that I'm fine? Or is there a lion that is going to attack me? So fear is a weapon we have to save ourselves. Mm. But fear is a construct in the sense of what am I afraid of, right? Am I afraid of being too loud? Because if I'm too loud, people are going to think that I'm not feminine enough. Am I afraid of being different? Because being different sets me as a kind of monster, a deviant. Am I afraid as a woman to not want to fit into the roles of women in my culture? Because again, I will be branded a monster. And what I tell my students is, I ask them at the beginning of class, okay, what do you think is the most fearsome monster in U.S. horror? And people will say, oh, a vampire, a werewolf, a witch. And I'll say, the most fearsome monster in U.S. horror is a woman in power. So it is totally a construct at the same time. And it's that construct that I live as a uh, scholar and as a faculty member to deconstruct. So in some ways, you're interested in the way that these cultural categories and cultural biases get transformed into our fear response? Exactly. 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 I mean, if you look at The Exorcist, William Peter Blatty says that he wrote The Exorcist because he wanted to scare 1970s audiences back to church. So a lot of what the demon Pazuzu does in that film is very geared. It's homophobic, right? It's extremely homophobic. It's extremely misogynistic. Why? Because our culture understands homophobia and misogyny as sort of natural parts of the culture. Mm-hmm. And the work of the horror, I think the, the exciting work of the horror scholar is to teach our students, is that the way it should be, right? And the greatest question my students ask, and we always end the class on that question, is what does progressive horror look like? Can there be progressive horror? Because if the culture has taught us to be afraid of particular things, once you demystify that fear, you're not afraid of it anymore. It's not horror anymore. So how can you produce progressive horror? And so that's, to me... I mean, it doesn't get more exciting than that. (laughs) I often ask people, how quickly is your field changing? And I guess the answer is every time a new monster comes out. 
every time. I mean, I think, you know, Jordan Peele has completely changed the genre, especially of U.S. horror films with Get Out, mm-hmm. right? Get Out is, is brilliant. I teach Get Out. For the first time this semester, I'm teaching Halloween 2018. I've never taught a slasher film before, but I figured I every year I try to teach uh, a text that I haven't taught before and that is current. And so this semester I'm doing Halloween 2018. So we'll see how progressive Halloween 2018 is. But certainly Get Out is revolutionary in many ways. Tell me about your new book that's just come out. Uh, it's called Gothic Geoculture, Representations of Cuba in the 19th Century Imaginary. Yes. So it is basically tracing to the beginning of our conversation. It's tracing the way that Cuba was represented as sort of being monstrous throughout the 19th century before in by the late 19th century it becomes represented as a victim, as a kind of gothic victim that has to be saved by the United States in 1898, which is when the United States you know, intervenes in Cuba in the, in the so-called Spanish-American War. So what I had found is that there was a number of, of authors that were representing Cuba in very different ways, as dangerous, as sort of corruptive, both from within Cuba and outside of Cuba, uh, and using that sort of monster trope. And so the book is trying to sort of trace that sort of literary historiography throughout about a 60-year period. What are you working on right now? Oh, right now, I am just enjoying my classes. and uh, I. That sounds nice. Yes, I am enjoying my classes. And um, I have a project that I don't know if I'm going to get to, but um, I often teach the Hamilton mixtape. And I am interested in sort of looking at the Hamilton musical as a narrative of immigration and looking at the way that it was created as a literary text from historical source material. Yeah. I mean, he used a biography of Hamilton. Rene Romano, President Decatur's wife, who is a professor at Oberlin, has written about historians on Hamilton. She has sort of to me, set the stage, or the historians that write that text have set the stage to a more literary analysis of the musical, because ultimately it's a literary text in many ways. It's a libretto. Yes, it's a libretto. And Lin-Manuel Miranda produced a whole book on how it's born. And I would be really interested in sort of looking at how it pretends to be about Alexander Hamilton, but it's really about Lin-Manuel Miranda's experience about as a Puerto Rican sort of immigrant, not immigrant, and that liminality. So I don't know where that will go, but that's what I'm sort of starting to think about. Is there one thing you wish non-literature scholars knew about what you teach? That it's important. Why is it important? Well, I think that, again, for my students, it is life-changing when they understand that what a lot of people dismiss as popular culture really has encoded a lot of cultural information that we should not be imbibing and consuming without understanding the ingredients, right? I can think of right now, you know, if you look at the ingredients in a soda can and you say, well, I'm not going to drink it because I don't understand these words. I'm not putting that in my body. I'm not going to put that in my body. Why do we just imbibe information that gets into our souls through our minds, through our eyes, and we don't really think about what are the ingredients that went into making it. 
So this is a Kenyan podcast, and I think I should end by asking you if you can recommend a book or two for anyone interested in seeing how the Caribbean was treated in U.S. Gothic novels. Sure. I mean, I think that there's two texts that I would say would be interesting, right? It's first the original version of Louisa May Alcott's novel Moods. It's her first novel. And Louisa May Alcott was very ambitious. She wanted to be the Hawthorne, right? She wanted to be like Nathaniel Hawthorne in in her writing and in scholarly academic circles. Nathaniel Hawthorne has been rated as probably the single best author of his generation, Hmm. the 19th century. And Alcott was very ambitious. She wanted to get to that point, but she was sort of stuck in having to write uh, what she called moral pap for, for girls, right? So like little women and and so she writes this novel, Moods, which a lot of scholars have said is about her herself. And the villain in that novel is a Cuban woman that is trying to to seduce and so and sort of to corrupt the the hero, who scholars have said is uh, modeled after Thoreau, whom scholars have said Alfred had a crush on. Hmm. And so I think that that's a an easy read to sort of see how Cuba, uh, you know, a lot of people might think out of the blue, but it's not out of the blue that that Alka chooses this woman, Otilla, to be the villain um, of the novel. And then I would say that in the Cuban side, Cecilia Valdez, it's the most famous, it's considered one of the, if not the most famous 19th century novel about slavery, but it's really interesting how Villaverde, the uh, author, gothicizes his heroine hmm. in really interesting ways. Okay. Well, Yvonne, I also need to share the news with listeners who may not have already heard that you will be leaving Kenyon this summer. You'll be headed north to the College of Worcester, where you'll be their first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. This is bittersweet news for us, of course. We're extremely happy for you, while also being very sad to see you go. Our comfort in this is, of course, that you won't be going far, and you will still be a part of even our smallest college consortium. So we may see you at some consortial gatherings. So I'll end by thanking you for coming on the Profcast and wishing (laughs) you only the best as you move on to this new challenge and position. We will miss you. Thank you so much, Dan. This was a pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Loved it. This episode was recorded at the Wright Center in downtown Mount Vernon in the beautiful facilities of the Department of Dance, Drama, and Film. My thanks go to my editor and junior producer, Elizabeth Aduma, Kenyan class of 2020, who recorded this episode, edited it, and made it sound professional. Thank you also to the Center for Innovative Pedagogy that funded this project and consulted on it since the beginning.